if you're feeling a little bit ill, you might be pale in your face. But if you're really sick, if you're feeling really sick, what colour might you be in your face? Okay, yellow, green I was going for. You know, really bad, you might say purple, but that's going a long way. Green, if you're sick, you might be a bit green. Now, store that in your mind and think of an English phrase. We say a person might be green with what? Green with envy. Yes, envy, wanting what others have. Being miserable, they've got it and overpowered with desire for it yourself. You might be green with envy. In other words, we're saying envy is a sickly thing. You could be green if you're sick. You could be green with envy. Because envy is a sickly thing. It's a miserable thing that spoils. And it would be good to be rid of it. And God tells us to get rid of it by a command on its twin. It's a very similar, if not identical, twin coveting. Let's turn in our series, we've got to the 10th commandment. So let's turn to Exodus 20 and read the 10th commandment. Exodus 20 verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant, or maidservant, his ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. We'd better begin by getting clear what is coveting. What is coveting? It's not a word that we use all that often. The word covet is simply the word for desire. The word here translated covet is actually just in itself a neutral word. It is neither right nor wrong bad nor good to covet, because it just means to desire. In fact, the same word is used elsewhere in the Bible in a positive way. It's exactly the same word in Psalm 19, verse 10, when it tells us God's words are more to be desired, or literally coveted, than much fine gold. Coveting can be a good thing. In fact, I I put on the notice sheet as the title, You Shall Not Covet. But we can't say you shall not covet, um, because not all coveting is wrong. And actually, we can't be people without any desire at all. I think you'd have to be dead to have no desire. We are to desire good things. So what is this commandment meaning when it tells us you shall not covet? What coveting is wrong? Well, verse 17 starts us on the way. As we've seen in our series, the commandments start us, but we need to look elsewhere to broaden out and to get more information. But we can get our start here in verse 17 by this. Look at the repeats in verse 17. What is repeated about what you shall not covet? It's your neighbours. Your neighbours, it belongs to someone else. You shall not covet. We can't put the full stop after the word covet because we should covet, desire God's word and many other things. But you should not covet things that belong to someone else. Now, that's a start. But given other parts of the Bible, we can broaden that out to you shall not covet what God says is not for you. It may be because it belongs to someone else, 
Or it may simply be that God has chosen not to give it to you and you must rest content with that and not be setting your desire on it. To help us a bit more think about what coveting is, I think we've got the basic there. It's desiring what God has said is not for you or chosen not to give to you. But let's think about it a bit more. Back in the 17th century, there were church leaders called Puritans. They have a bad reputation that they don't deserve. They were were good church leaders worth listening to. And one of them was uh, called Thomas Watson. He wrote about the Ten Commandments. And he said there are two Greek words in the New Testament that show the nature of coveting. The first one means insatiable desire for the world. And the second one means inordinate. I can't even say this word rightly, inordinate love of the world. Now, insatiable and inordinate, they're not the most common words. They mean this, a desire that's got hold of you. It has got too strong. It's got out of proportion. And notice he said a desire for the world. Those two Greek words have this sense of it's a desire for the world, the things the world offers to us. In fact, uh, this chap Thomas Watson said, I I found this quite helpful. He said, you are covetous when you take more pains for getting earth than heaven. Then he said, you are covetous when you hunt for the world, but just wish for heaven. I found that quite searching. I'd recommend you search yourself with that phrase. There are many people who wish for heaven, but you look in their life at what they're hunting for Well, it's the things the world offers. That's a phrase well worth pondering. You are covetous when you hunt for the world and just wish for heaven. Now, I'm still in my introduction, by the way, trying to help you understand what coveting is. And to do that, we also need to realise this. Don't think of coveting too narrowly. Don't think of it as just the fat cat or the miser grabbing money. You can you can cover all sorts of things. Let's look at verse 17 again. Yes, it has servants and oxen and donkeys, which in that society were markers of wealth and ways they were your assets. So, yes, it can be coveting money. Material possessions, but it's also verse 17, your neighbor's wife. In other words, you can cover someone's family or relationships. And that very first one, house, probably means household, which is probably a summary for the whole situation and life of a person. His whole situation. Coveting can be very broad. Let's try to think broadly. Let's get you thinking. What might we covet that another person has thinking broadly? It's not just money. What else could it be? Reputation, yeah, someone's reputation and status. Someone's job, yeah, which might be because of the money, but there could be a whole load of other reasons too. What else might you cover that someone else has? Marriage and other relationships, yeah. Abilities, yeah, very much. Abilities. And and one related to that that we might not think of, even their personality, we might covet. What else? 
Are there achievements? Yeah. Someone's health? You could covet their health. Oh, there's so much, isn't it? Popularity? Their friendships? Lifestyle? Okay, that's to do with possessions, but it's not just possessions. We've got to think broadly about this. Because otherwise, there's a lot of coveting we won't notice. Coveting, it, it can get in and spoil so many areas. It can make you green with envy, sickly. And, and God's commands are good. I hope you've been seeing that over this series. They are so good for us. It is good for us to get rid of coveting. So I want to spend the rest of the sermon on helps to get rid of coveting. And I want to do it this way. When you get tempted to covet, what truths can you remind yourself to help you fight against the coveting? I want to give you five truths to remind yourself when you're tempted to help you fight off that coveting. Here we go. Five truths. Here's the first one. Remind yourself this. Paul learnt to be content. Let's turn to Philippians 4 verse 11. We're going to be in quite a few different places, so you choose whether you want to turn to these verses or or just listen to them. Philippians 4, verse 11. I'm jumping in the middle of a paragraph here. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Contentment is the opposite of coveting. Contentment is the antidote to coveting. By the way, children, an antidote is something you take to to work against a poison. Coveting is like a poison. Contentment is the thing that works against and cures it. Paul had learned to be content. And if you read this paragraph, he might sound impressively strong. He is this self-sufficient man, and it sounds like he's saying, whatever the circumstances, I rise above them. I am self-sufficient. I've learnt the secret. But he's actually saying the opposite, quite the opposite to that. He's saying, I've learned to rely on Christ. Verse 13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. A verse people can take in silly ways that I can do everything. Don't take that in a silly, simplistic way. It's looking back to what he's just said. I can I can do all of this being content in any situation Through Christ, he gives me the strength to do it. Now, there's a lot there in that paragraph, that, and I'm not going to go into any of it tonight. I just want us to notice this truth to remind yourself. When coveting comes for you, Paul learnt to be content. You're trying to play the violin. You've never picked up a violin before, but you pick up the instrument and the bow and you make a few, whatever you call those movements with the bow, and out comes a terrible screech. And so you change your fingering and you try again and uh, someone in the house asks, who's strangling that cat? And so you put it down and say, it's no good, I can't make any music out of this instrument. And your mother says to you, your older cousin learnt to play the violin and learnt to play it well. Now, what is she telling you when she says your older cousin learnt to play the violin? She's telling you, you don't get it by just picking it up. You've got to learn. It takes learning. But she's also telling you it can be learned. It is possible. And we need both about contentment. 
We need to remember this. It takes learning. Paul had to learn it. Being born again does not automatically make you contented. Turning to the Lord Jesus doesn't straight away make you a contented person. There are some things that salvation gives you straight away. Contentment is not one of them. It has to be learned. It takes learning. But Paul learned to be content also tells you it can be learned. Contentment is not just for the saints in heaven. It is possible to be contented in Loughborough in 2021. So when temptation to cover comes your way, remind yourself this truth. Paul learnt to be content. It takes learning. And maybe this temptation is an opportunity to learn it. And it is possible. There's the first truth. Now, the other truths tell us some of the ways we can learn to be content. So let's move on to the second one. When coveting comes your way, remind yourself this truth. I can trust God. I can trust God. How did sin come into the world? Have a think. There are multiple answers to this. How did sin come into the world? You're probably thinking of a tree and a garden and a man and a woman and a snake and forbidden fruit. And okay, we're in Genesis three. How did sin come into the world? I'll read you a verse from Genesis three. It's verse six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. And you might guess the significance of that word desirable. Yes, it's the same word as covet. Not something wrong in itself, but wrong when God has said no, and he definitely said no to that one. How did sin come into the world? Part of the answer is through coveting. Where did the coveting come from, though? Why did she think that is desirable and even though God said, no, I must have it. The answer is because she did not trust God. She thought God is denying me something good. God, I cannot trust God to have my best interests at heart. Coveting comes from not trusting God. That's true of all behind all of our coveting. Here's some made up examples. Sajid has his eye on his uncle's house. Whenever he goes to visit his uncle, he looks at the house and wonders how much it's worth and thinks, one day this is going to come to me, the money for this, and I want that day to hurry up and come around soon. Why is he like that? He's not trusting God for his financial future. Stella envies her sister's family. She sees how her sister's children are uh, uh, so much more successful and well-behaved than hers. And her sister's house is a lot nicer. And her sister gets new clothes much more often. Why does she? Why does Stella covet? Because she doesn't trust that what God has provided for her is generous and good for her. Behind coveting is a failure to trust God. Jesus gives the solution. I'm going to turn to Luke 12. Choose whether you turn to it or just listen. Luke 12. Very interesting verses. Luke 12, verse 32. Luke 12, verse 32. Jesus speaking. 
Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. The way your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus was speaking to poor people. The ordinary people of the Middle East in that time were poor. And poor meant you had to work to survive, not poor to get the, the, the top class of donkey and your children into the top class of school. And so it's quite understandable for them to fear and covet. Because their situation looked vulnerable. But Jesus says, no, no, don't covet, instead give. Don't grasp, instead be generous. And the key to it is, I can trust God. Verse 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. The key to it is, God hasn't promised me health and wealth, but he has promised me his kingdom. He has promised me, verse 33, treasure in heaven that won't ever get stolen or worn out. Do you believe there's such a place as heaven? That's a genuine question because actually we talk a lot as if we don't really. Do you believe there's such a place as heaven? Do you believe that to be with Christ is better? Do you believe in eternal life? Do you believe God keeps his promises? Do you believe he is a kind and generous father who loves to give us what is good for us? Well, if you do, then you won't covet. And you say, yes, I believe those things, but I still covet. Yes, but we need them to sink in more. The more we really do believe them and they get hold of us, the less we're going to covet. Because coveting is setting your desires on what God has not given you. As if he hasn't given you enough and you can't trust his goodness. Now, do you see, as I've said before in this series, the key to fighting sin is not something super complicated. It's something simple. I didn't say easy. Easy is a different matter, but it is simple. It's trusting God's goodness. Such a guard against coveting. So we've had Paul learn to be content. I can trust God. Here's the third one. It's the only negative one tonight. It's it won't satisfy. It won't satisfy. Remind yourself that truth. Years ago, I was driving home from work. You can tell it was years ago. I obviously don't drive home from work anymore. And uh, the radio was on and there was some news item. And it said something like this. It said, survey, a survey had shown that 40% of people who earned 30-something thousand said it's not enough to cope on. And 40%, what are, the, what are my figures that I'm saying? 50% of people who weren't 40-something thousand said it's not enough to cope with. And 60% of people who weren't 50-something thousand said it's not enough to cope with. Now, don't note down those figures and go and quote them because I've just made them up. Okay? Not simply because it's so many years ago I can't remember the figures. But the pattern was like that. It was people who earned decent salaries... But as the salary got higher, more and more of them said, it's not enough. And that's what Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10 is telling us. I'm trying to find Ecclesiastes. 
Here it is. It's after Proverbs. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. And we know that well. And you might even heard the saying of John D. Rockefeller. It's reckoned that, well, he was one of the richest men in, in the history of America, made his billions out of oil. And it's reckoned he was asked, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? And his great answer was just a little bit more. Now, we all know this, don't we? And we all know it won't satisfy. And we all know moth and rust corrupt. And we all know the previous things we looked for and thought that will make us happy. It didn't. But we still fall for the appeal again and again. We still think if I had that, I would be happy. If I had that, I would be contented. What do you put in place of that in those sentences? Now, Ecclesiastes, and I hope it was clear in the chapter that was read to us from Ecclesiastes, when it says money won't satisfy, it's not a miserable chapter just engaging in sour grapes. Do you know sour grapes? The Aesop's fable, the the fox looks at the grapes and he wants the grapes and he can't get the grapes, so he slinks off saying, ah, they're probably sour anyway. Ecclesiastes 5 and the rest of the Bible that says it won't satisfy isn't just being miserable about things. Because Ecclesiastes 5 and the Bible commend God's good gifts and enjoying them. Ecclesiastes 5 says money won't satisfy you, but enjoy food and drink and good ordinary gifts from God. But don't chase after them as if they'll satisfy. When tempted to chase them, here's the third truth to remind yourself. It won't satisfy. Here's the fourth truth to help you fight coveting. I should love my neighbour. I should love my neighbour. We get this from Romans 13, verse 9. Romans 13, verse 9. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbour as yourself. Oh, Paul, don't you know it's the New Testament? What are you talking about, the commandments, as if we all accept the Ten Commandments? It's interesting, isn't it? Paul quotes the Ten Commandments as if they're still valid. Well, yeah, that's because they are. But he says this, they're all to do with love. That's pretty straightforward with the sixth, isn't it? Murdering people is unloving. It's pretty straightforward with the eighth. Stealing things from someone is unloving. But here it says it's true also of the ninth. Coveting. Sorry, I mean the tenth. We're on to ten, aren't we? Yes. Coveting is unloving. How is that? How's coveting unloving? Well, because coveting means when I covet, rather than wanting what is good for my neighbour, I want to get things from my neighbour. Rather than being concerned for them, I'm concerned for the things they have. I don't see people to love, I see get from them. Take my example earlier that I made up. Sajid has his eye on his uncle's house. And he's thinking, when he dies, I'm going to get that money and uh, I'd like to get it soon. Well, is he thinking of what's best for his uncle? 
No, he's seeing his uncle just as a source of money. It's so obviously unloving. And in fact, he'd rather have the money than have his uncle. Love doesn't look at someone's house or money or family or abilities and just see things for me to get and think, I want that and I'm annoyed they've got it instead of me. Love is genuinely glad for them. Love is genuinely glad they have it and they can enjoy it because love thinks of them rather than me first. In other words, love does Romans 12 verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. I remember at university when I was a student uh, and I went along to church and the minister said, it is harder to rejoice with those who rejoice than mourn with those who mourn. And I don't know if I was just young or slow or just hadn't experienced much of life, but that I thought, really? That was news to me. But then there were in that church some women. Quite a few of them had just had babies and one had just had a miscarriage. It is quite easy to mourn with the one who's had a miscarriage. I'm not saying it's easy to understand fully and completely sympathise, but it's easy to feel some sadness for her having her miscarriage. It is not so easy for her to really rejoice with the women who've just had a baby. It is hard to rejoice, to genuinely feel glad for them having the thing that we haven't got. And this shows up. God doesn't lower his standards down to what sinful nature can do. A little while back, we were promoting a book called God's Impossible Commands. I suspect there's still some in the bookstore. God's commands are impossible for sinful human nature to fully do. Because he doesn't lower his standards down to what sinful nature can do. We won't manage you shall not covet without a new heart. Because we won't manage that love that genuinely actually wants another person's best without a new heart from God. When temptation to covet comes knocking on your door, remind yourself this, I should love that neighbour who has that thing. Last one, last truth to remind yourself, God has given me so much to enjoy. God has given me so much to enjoy. And I'm getting this from 1 Timothy Chapter 6, verse 17. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. When we covet, what is our focus on? When we covered, our focus is on what they've got or on what I haven't got. Our focus is not on what I have got. And a good corrective, a good antidote to coveting is think about what God has given me to enjoy. God has given me so much to enjoy. His gifts are so good. Now, here we are in an evangelical church. And if you're used to going to an evangelical church, your mind hopefully jumps straight away to, yes, he's given me his son. The greatest gift. I'm to enjoy him. True. Great. But let's not jump straight there. Because 
The lesser gifts, they're much lesser, but they're still well worthwhile. So let's first remember them. Let's remember the lesser gifts God's given us to enjoy. Proverbs, wisdom to fight sin. It says, here's a guard against coveting someone else's spouse. What is the guard, Proverbs says? It says, enjoy and appreciate your own spouse. Enjoy God's gifts so you don't covet someone else's gift. (laughs) It's pretty straightforward. Ecclesiastes says, here's a guard against continual grasping for more. What's the guard in Ecclesiastes? Enjoy food and drink and work and rest that God is giving you now. Instead of focusing on what you haven't been given or others have. And here in 1 Timothy, it's saying a guard against being stingy and grasping for self is God has given you so much to enjoy. Richly. Now think of that. God cares about your enjoyment. It doesn't say God's given you all you need, so be content. It says God's given you to enjoy. John Calvin, one of the great church leaders down through history, he said, That God has put precious jewels in the ground shows he isn't just into what functions, he's into enjoyment. I don't know if Calvin was scientifically correct, but he said there's something that it doesn't do much useful, but they're enjoyable. Well, if you like looking at diamonds and things, I suppose. He's saying God isn't just interested in us working and getting by. He cares about our enjoyment. You could spread that out to the flowers and the variety and the food and so much he gives us. So, stop to think what he's given you and make some time to enjoy it because discontent is the breeding ground for an awful lot of sin. But let's get back to the gift God has given. I, I didn't say we shouldn't focus there. I said let's, let's do the lesser gifts first and let's now get to his indescribable gift. That takes us back where we started. Do you remember the first truth? Paul learnt to be content. And when he said that, it came at the end of Philippians. Are there any any indications in Philippians about how Paul had learnt the secret of contentment? What's the tone of Philippians? What's the content of Philippians? Oh, it's things like this. Chapter 1, verse 21. To me, to live is Christ. And chapter 3, verse 8, I consider everything a loss compared with the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In fact, I consider them all just rubbish compared with knowing him. Or chapter 3, verse 20, I am eagerly awaiting a saviour from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And why, why does Paul think? Because he knows that great hymn in the middle of Philippians, in chapter 2. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider that something to be grasped hold of, but he made himself nothing. And he became a servant. He humbled himself for me. In other words, the tone of Philippians is being taken up with Jesus. The secret of Paul's contentment is he's had his heart captured by Jesus. Now, again, it doesn't take rocket science to fight sin. It's back to the simple old gospel. We fight sin by taking in more and more who the Lord Jesus is and what he's done 
and have him captivate our hearts. Well, there are five truths to remind yourself. They're worth memorising. Will you try and memorise those five truths? I hope they're simple and clear enough to memorise them. And then look for opportunity to put them into practice, to remind yourself those five truths. Do it because God's commands are good for us. Don't be green with envy. Don't be sick with covetousness. Fight it with those five truths. Let's pray for help to do that. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Father, we thank you that you've given your son and may may he captivate our hearts. May the Holy Spirit be like that divine matchmaker to us, winning us to the Lord Jesus. May we see more and more of how he's first loved us. And so may that fill us with love, love to him, love to you, Father, and also love to our neighbour. So instead of wanting what our neighbours have got, we're genuinely pleased for them. And Father, may that, having our hearts captivated by our love, make us fully reassured that we can trust you. You are good. And having given us your son, how will you not freely give us all things? So, Father, please help us to keep our lives free from covetousness and be content. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.